yeah, it's like, was it good? No. Did we learn anything? Also, no. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the use of mental illness as a plot twist with my guest, Catherine Cross. I'm Catherine Alejandra Cross, a PhD candidate in information science at the University of Washington and a gaming critic and journalist. Catherine and I started to discuss this topic after I quoted her in an article I wrote for Waypoint. If you don't want to hear about plot details from the 2019 Fjord Noir game Draugen, then go ahead and save this episode for later. Otherwise, welcome to the first episode of this new series of Talking Simulator. It's a good one. We discuss the over-reliance of indie narrative games on plot twists and compare those that pivot on mental illness with the use of other identities and experiences as a surprise reveal. Inevitably, we also talk through our feelings on content warnings and spoilers and even how they apply to legacy board games that are designed to change permanently as you play them. So there are light spoilers for Pandemic Legacy, Firewatch, and the movie The Crying Game. But mostly we dig into the specific kind of plot twist used in video games like Draugen. So we started talking about the use of mental illness as a plot twist in video games because of an article that you wrote about Draugen, which is a game that was advertised as having this increasingly unreliable narrator. For anyone who's listening who hasn't played it, can you kind of briefly explain what happens in the game? Yes. Yeah, so obviously, uh, spoiler alert, you've been warned, don't come for my family. <laughs> what happens in Dragon is, is that you're playing a sort of dapper gentleman in the 1920s who, with his young ward, has gone to a remote fishing village in Norway to discover what happened to his sister, an intrepid globetrotting journalist who disappeared in this small town. And what you quickly discover is that your young ward actually exists only in your head and that you are also haunted by other what we might think of as dissociative identity disorder alters or was previously called in less felicitous language you know split personality and that yeah your man is crazy and that, that is the big plot reveal, right, mm -hmm. that drives the story and that is the essence of its unreliable narration. So what did you think of the game when you first played it? I had very mixed feelings about it, to put it mildly. <laughs> I sincerely wanted to love this game. Uh, that's the thing. In the review that I wrote, I think that that does come across as me sort of struggling with a beautiful game, and it is exceptionally beautiful, but struggling with the fact that it lets down its characters and indeed its premise so well, because even the premise of the main character that you play, Edward, being someone afflicted by some mental illness that is meant to evoke DID or perhaps schizophrenia. It's never named, and the creators claim that, in fact, it is not a mental illness at all. But even that basic idea isn't inherently bad. The idea that Edward is living with this, the idea that Lissy, 
his young ward is technically not someone who occurs in our reality, that's not a bad thing. But the way that it's handled, the way that it's played as a plot reveal, as a plot twist, I just really struggled with that. It infects the game root and branch. And it's a beautiful little narrative game, as you know, so-called walking simulator. It is nothing if not relentlessly gorgeous. If you love fjords, if you're pining for the fjords, this <laughs> is certainly a game that will appeal to that. But it reaches for something beyond its grasp in a way that is very much typified by leaning on this sort of lazy trope. And I almost feel like the game would have been stronger if it had started with this revelation rather than making it the fulcrum upon which the game turned. Yeah, so let's unpick that a bit because I know that some people interpret this kind of criticism of a game's portrayal of mental illness as an aversion to games containing any portrayal of mental illness at all. So like, oh, if you don't like that this game has a disassociative identity disorder in it, that means that you don't want stories that have anyone with mental illness in them. You just want happy stories. And I know that that's not the case. So I, I want to make sure we pick that apart. Like, what is the difference between, you know, the way Draugen tells its story about mental illness and the way mental illness can be better included? in a video game story. Yes, absolutely. You know, as I said, whatever Edward is dealing with is, I think, a perfectly legitimate subject for a speculative fiction narrative. But the way that I explain this in my analysis of the game is that I analogize it to another old and ugly trope, and that is using someone's trans identity or status as a spoiler, right? sort of the classic crying game style narrative where the big reveal is that a character turns out to be trans. And it is extraordinarily dehumanizing, right? Because it turns a person's lived experience, a whole precinct of their existence, into a mere plot device that serves only to entertain others. There's a certain grossness about this that turns the inherent deceptiveness that is often attributed to people with mental illness or transgender people or queer people and numerous other identities, people who are in bigoted cultural media portrayed as deceptive inherently, right? And this sort of reinforces that regardless of the intent. So, Drogon could have been a very interesting story that began with this being clear about Edward from the start and the drama coming from elsewhere, right? The difference between telling a story about, say, a disabled person versus a story that exploits a person's disability is that a story about a disabled person has them interacting with the world as a human being, whereas a story that exploits their disability is one that sort of strip mines it for narrative goals like this, using it as a spoiler, right? And that's the difference here, is that what the story ultimately turned out to be about, because other spoiler, <laughs> Edward's sister doesn't exist. She's not in the town. She actually died when he was a kid. And we learn that he has just sort of made up this fictional sister, as it were, whole cloth, imagining what she would have been like had she grown up, right? Mm. She died when they were like 10 or something, drowning in a lake. And instead, you know, he's been sort of quixotically pursuing this phantom to the literal ends of the earth, 
because he's not dealing with his trauma. And again, there's an interesting story to be told there, but I feel like the way that it's done does a terrific disservice to people who are struggling with similar sorts of issues. My best possible read on it is that this is a great opening chapter to a better story. And I actually hope it gets made. Do you think that's likely? (sighs) I mean, the game promised that they would return a la James Bond, but I, I can't say. And I, I certainly don't know if um, the creators would be willing to talk to me at this point about that. <laughs> yeah, should we talk a bit about the response from the creators then? The way that the people who made this game responded to this kind of criticism? Yes, I mean, in general, it was professional. There was nothing untoward that was said to me directly, but I did follow the commentary on heaven help me, the Steam forums. (laughs) And actually, there were some responses from the developers to people who had actually used my article to raise this criticism because it reflected something that they were feeling about the game and anxiety that they couldn't name. Oh, this seems a bit hinky. And my essay was able to give them handles to put on that feeling. And the developers insisted that actually Edward was not in any sense struggling with mental illness, right? This was not supposed to be schizophrenia or DID or anything else diagnosable. The implication was was that it was sort of, you know, uh, special speculative fiction, you know, ghost, something like that. And that's fine, except that you simply cannot use the symbolic language and not expect that this freight train of meaning to come barreling along with it. You just can't do that. I showed this game and talked about it at length with a dear friend of mine who is living with DID, and she was shocked because it's like, oh my god, yeah, those are altars. This is totally what that looks like. So regardless of their intentions, regardless of the developer's intentions, that's what it passed as. That is what these visual bits of language taken together when assembled spelled out to a lot of people. You could try to read it positively and say, actually, this is a story about learning to accept oneself with DID or some such, right? And it sort of just fakes you out about it being a sort of murder mystery Mm. because like what's happened is you come to this town and it's basically abandoned right there's no one there and so you're trying to figure out in addition to your sister disappearing where is everybody right and it has these overweening supernatural vibes but then you discover just how much of it is in edward's head Mm. and I don't know. I feel like it's just a couple notches above. It was all a dream, right? In a way that ends up accidentally coming across as ableist. And I'm willing to say it was an accident, but it was certainly more careless than I would have expected, especially from a team that is just so good at writing in general. Hmm. I'm interested in 
why creators of these kinds of narratives are so reluctant to name a mental illness that they seem to be so clearly portraying. For my sins, I think of Big Bang Theory, you know, the the kind of sitcom with uh, Sheldon, the character in it, who many, many people read as autistic. But I know that in interviews, people have denied it. People who've worked on the show have said, no, he's not autistic. He's not on the spectrum. And I wonder why developers feel that urge to kind of keep it more vague and not put a label on things. Do you have any theories? Yeah, certainly. And uh, as an autistic woman myself, yeah, I completely get that. Uh, for the listeners at home, when Jordan brought up the Big Bang Theory, I was just sort of grinning and nodding along, <laughs> like, oh, yes, oh, yes. Because it is, you know, at least in the same universe, no pun intended. And I think the reason for that is that to do so is itself another form of ableism, right? The fear in naming what these tropes are based on lies in a fear of alienating, in the case of Big Bang Theory, holistic viewers and fear of appearing to be either engaging in advocacy or trying to have some plausible deniability to deflect against criticism. And I think that in the case of Drogon, if I had to guess, there was maybe a little bit of that. And I think also there might have just been people falling too much in love with the idea that this could be done without what I call that freight train of meaning. I think they sincerely wanted this to be a sort of magically realistic story where Edward was not suffering from any sort of mental illness, was not living with any neuroatypical state of mind but was instead that there's something supernatural at work here, right? You know, they might have gotten too lost in an idea that they were in love with, which is something that I sympathize with, actually. You know, I we want game developers to take risks. We want them to give in to wild ideas that are not necessarily safe, that tread new ground. But I think that this particular expression was just a misfire. So when we as critics are determined to interpret it the way we see it, regardless of what the developer says, are we calling death of the author there? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I have been involved in that tug of war for so long. <laughs> I think that, you know, authorial intent certainly is not all it's cracked up to be. I think that is the fairest way to say it invariably an artwork that is put out into the world is part of a conversation and you do not claim sovereignty over its meaning as its creator. I think that's the fairest thing to say about this because art gains meaning in that public conversation. As I said earlier, you use symbols assembled in a certain way to communicate. It is language. And you don't have complete control over what language means. You are using it to communicate to the world. And when you put together this semiotic smorgasbord that depicts something that looks like schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, you can't call it anything else and expect that to fly with what 
at least in my reading, were pretty large segments of Jorgen's intended audience that did receive it this way, mm. right? And I do find it unfortunate. I had hoped that the article that I wrote was measured in its attempt to sketch out this territory between the developer's intentions and how some segments of the audience, myself included, who do struggle with some form of neuroatypicality, were receiving it. Because these things are different. And you can't, as I said, claim sovereignty over the meaning of your work. And I think, you know, you and I, as authors of nonfiction work, experience much the same thing. You know, it's unfortunate. I wish I could claim that sovereignty sometimes. <laughs> you know, my favorite Audrey Lord quote was her vow to never leave my pen lying in someone else's blood, right? That has always stuck with me as an academic, as a nonfiction writer and a fiction writer, because it reflects a keen understanding of the fact that writing is part of a massive conversation and you are responsible to others as you do it. So, yes, without getting into dissecting uh, Roland Barthes, this, <laughs> that's the best that I can say. So in this game, you play as a young man who is on an ill-fated quest to find his sister, accompanied by another younger female character who turns out to exist only in his mind. How do the gender dynamics here interact with the nature of this plot twist? Yeah, it certainly is interesting. Like, I love Lissy a great deal as a character, right? She's got this sort of, you know, spunky demeanor about her. She's all sass and 1920s slang, <laughs> right? And I think actually profoundly humane and even representing of his conscience, although that certainly is a trope in its own right. But mm. I like her a lot. And yet, yeah, it is a little difficult to acknowledge that there are these two powerful independent women who are both essentially figments of his imagination that serve the purpose of massaging his trauma in essence. Like when I found out that the sister was fake, I was so bummed about that. Mm because I wanted her to be real. She sounded so freaking cool. <laughs> or at least real, you know, diegetically. Mm. And that was unfortunate. I keep using the word unfortunate a lot, but it's probably the best and most reasonable way to describe the situation. I don't think it was intentional. Certainly, like Ragnar Turnquist and a lot of people that he's worked with have a history of writing very good women characters. The Secret World remains probably the best written MMO in all of video gaming, right? Which, low bar, but still <laughs> cleared with a great deal of grace. And, you know, a great part of that is that there are awesome women in uh, portrayed in that game. And so I think it's just a, a little unfortunate because you are playing a man and the the women in his life as portrayed in this game exist solely essentially in service to him, not necessarily in a straightforward sense, but in a sense that I think limits the horizons of these characters' possibilities. Yeah, I mean, they can't exist without him, 
it's kind of a more literal version of the relationship that happens in a lot of other fiction where the woman wouldn't be a character without her relation to the man. Exactly. So a lot of indie games especially, and especially this kind of walking simulator genre, like you said, do this kind of plot twist where, you know, you think it's one thing and then it turns out to be another, I suppose because of the limits of a game with limited budget and scope. So did you like, for example, Firewatch or Gone Home? Yeah, I think that, well, I liked those games. I really did. I definitely did not think of the twists as necessarily related to mental illness, exactly. In Firewatch, the closest it gets is that it's very much a story about grief, which is, I think, by contrast, very well done and very tastefully done. But the use of the fake-out is indeed such a big thing in a lot of these games, and that is, I think, you're right to point out a trope that's started to emerge in a lot of them that also, to return to the gender discussion, starts to intersect with the sort of, if I may be a bit crude here, sad man wandering around trope in some of these games. And I don't want to be too mean about that because, like, you know, in a gaming universe populated by beefy space marine men who shoot their way out of every problem, it is kind of nice to see games that center men who are dealing with their feelings Mm -hmm. instead. Like, it's, it's nice to see. But, you know, it it puts me as much in the mind of something like Dear Esther, Mm. which is a game that I compared Drogon a lot to. And what I had said in my article was that Dear Esther showed how much was left when you took everything away. And Drogon shows how little remains when you put it all back. Because Drogon is a more interactive game, whereas Dear Esther, if you've never played it, it is certainly more of an experience. You really are just wandering around the sort of, like, craggy North Sea island experiencing the landscape and these voiceovers that trigger at certain points. You don't really get to interact in a very direct sense. Whereas in Dragon, you know, there's dialogue options. You can point and click on things and explore in a way that's, you know, more like what you would in a typical RPG. But to not stray too far away from your question, the reason that I bring that up is because I think that these two threads actually intersect the sort of exploration of a man's grieving psyche alongside a desire for there to be a fake out Mm -hmm. right firewatch's fake out was about the fact that you think you're stepping into this thriller right an international or x-files style conspiracy and it's just it turns out there's a normal explanation for everything similarly Dragon's gesturing at the supernatural is kind of deflated by the revelation about Edward. Mm. But the difference is that Firewatch successfully pulls this off as someone who's alone in the woods looking for meaning in the world, assembling it out of the pieces that he has been given and then accepting it when that turns out not to be true, and anchoring himself in what is real. Whereas with Drogon, it really is a lot less clear. Because even though I say that, you know, the supernatural aspect of the game was deflated, apparently that wasn't necessarily intentional. There is 
supposedly something supernatural still may be happening in the background. You also never learn exactly what happened to the village, by the way. That was unfortunate. But it's implied very heavily that there are mysteries yet to be solved in this world. And so it's a little unclear exactly what the nature of the growth is, a little unclear what the nature of the world is, and not in a the sense of artistic elision. It's just frustratingly unclear. And so there is that narrative failing as well as the sort of thematic failing of how disability is used. And I think that it's the result of a trope that has perhaps gone a bit unexamined about the need to like fake out the audience. So if you're going to have a two to five hour gaming experience, it's going to be a big twist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's really necessary. You know, that sort of thing is often criticized as lazy storytelling. And well, look, I love Pulp Fiction as much as the next girl. <laughs> I think that we can start thinking about ways to tell stories that don't involve that kind of twist. Let's talk a little bit about content warnings, if you would, and what a player can expect going into a game. So I think of the recent fury around Boyfriend Dungeon. Oh, yes. And how some people felt that they didn't get enough forewarning of the way that the plot went. And, you know, it does come with a content warning, but people didn't think that it was maybe good enough. I wonder if for a game like Draugen, you think that a content warning would have helped or whether it would have kind of spoiled the twist, whether the developer would have been reluctant to implement a content warning for that reason. That is a very interesting question. I think that they might have seen it as spoiling things, Mm. which is the whole problem with treating an identity or a lived experience of this nature as a pure plot device. Like when it just becomes a cog in the narrative machinery, that is ultimately dehumanizing in a big way. And so, yeah, I think that If you had a content warning that said, you know, this involves portrayals of mental illness along such and such lines, then I think the writers might have feared that it was priming the player to view things in a certain way, especially if the devs were committed to this idea that Edward is not dealing with mental illness, right? That it is not an experience of his, but rather this is something else, something supernatural or whatever, right? And so I can't envision it happening. But I also don't know if in this case it would have been helpful. Mm. Like all else being equal, would a content warning before the crying game make it not a shitty narrative? Well, no. And while I don't think Drogon is anything like that shitty, it's unfortunately at least in the same postal code because of the way that it handles this revelation. And I think that that's the problem fundamentally. A content warning doesn't make that go down more smoothly, you know. And I guess, you know, maybe it's an aposematic thing where it's like, well, you have the content warning to warn people to stay away from this game because they might go into it not expecting the ableism to hit them. But I think that just the better solution is to not do that. Like, Boyfriend Dungeon, that was a whole interesting farrago like 
what that game was trying to do and what it did well was to portray a toxic relationship dynamic, an abusive dynamic. And I think that that's something that it did well and it absolutely had a sort of moral right to do. With Drogon, I don't think anything of value was accomplished by making this an unwitting DID or schizophrenia story, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that we really gained very much as an audience from that boldness, whereas other subjects of these sorts of ritualistic call-outs, like Boyfriend Dungeon or Christine Love's wonderful... Why am I blanking on the name of it suddenly? My twin brother made me cross-dresses. What's the short title of it? Lady Killer in a Bind. That's the one. Yeah, like both of these games were the target of call-outs that I felt were both fair and unfair in certain lights. But what was crucial about both of them is that what they were trying to do was something that I think was worth doing, right? In one instance portraying the interiority of being sexually assaulted in a way that you didn't know how to feel about, right? You were wondering, you know, how am I really feeling about this? Do I like this? What not? It's horrifying, but it is a real experience that many people, including myself, have had. And I was very, very sad to see that sort of excised And similarly, with Boyfriend Dungeon portraying these stalking dynamics, that's actually a very useful thing to do artistically, including and especially in games like this. So, you know, I think that whatever else may be said, it was worthwhile territory to explore. I don't know if we did, we achieved anything like that with Dragon. I don't know if we're really better for having explored this. In light of a sequel, I might be willing to reconsider, but as it stands, yeah, it's like, was it good? No. Did we learn anything? Also no. (laughs) So to finish then, let's talk a little bit about spoilers. So you made a a joke earlier, you know, spoilers are coming about Dragon don't come for my family. (laughs) You and I, when we wrote about these games, I about Magnificent Truffle Picks and you about Dragon, we both spoiled them because we needed to in order to analyse the story. But there's obviously a strong aversion to spoilers in traditional video game coverage. Do you think that we should be more willing to spoil games in just reviews of them, perhaps to you know, warn potential players about this kind of thing? Or do you think that we should continue to avoid them, especially for games that rely on plot twists like this? Yeah, it certainly is an interesting question. I mean, I I think, as I implied with that snarky joke, very much come down on the pro-spoiler side. I'll be honest with you, I find the way that our culture is so guarded about plot spoilers to be suffocating and insufferable. (laughs) And I get it, right? I just watched the Maltese Falcon for the first time a couple of weeks ago, right? And my partner's been raving about it forever. She's a huge old movie fan. And somehow I'd never had it spoiled for me. And being able to go into it and experience it as it was supposedly meant to be experienced in cinema, never having seen it before, it was profoundly impactful. I literally did not know what was going to happen until the last 30 seconds of the film, right? And it still holds up to this day. 
I get it. I get why people are guarded about spoilers. But I feel like, as your question implies, this taboo infects press coverage where there is ample room to include a warning saying spoilers follow so that people can choose not to read something that threatens to spoil the story for them if that is their choice. It feels like there is a sort of prizing of spoiler-free content because that can reach a larger audience and also because it fits better with this sort of social norm. And it is a norm Mm. that has calcified in any number of fan communities. And this is this, this, despite the fact that we do have a lot of tools that enable us to better manage this, right? So many forums now have spoiler tags and you can black out text that threatens to spoil something. Like even I'm sort of internalizing this language, right? You know, sort of threatening to spoil, it's coming for you, right? Like people treat it as this incredibly horrible violation and it isn't. Because, you know, in writing, I think, really meaty criticism. You sometimes have to go into the whole story top to bottom. The other thing that I do, and I'm starting to do a bit more of, is I also review board games, right? And it may shock you that this is something of an issue there too. Really? Yes, because uh, are you familiar with legacy games? Uh, Yes. So, yeah, I remember being tempted recently by Pandemic Legacy. And I'd read and listened to some very creditable reviews from people I trust. I said, this game is great. And I thought, well, maybe I should actually look into it. And then I just had this nagging feeling of, or oh, should I? <laughs> and I actually tried my damnedest to look up, like, you know, spoilerific reviews of it. And I found out after some digging that actually Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is entirely not my kind of game because the big twist and reveal in that game is not my jam Mm. it is probably some people's jam but it's a genre i have less than no interest in (laughs) that completely changes the nature of you know the sort of base game of pandemic which is fine that's an artistic choice but there's nothing on the box that advertises it and the vast majority of board game reviews that look at legacy games don't touch on the spoilers Mm. and in a case like this where you're almost sort of baited and switched on something as fundamental as genre that matters and I find it frustrating that you're not really able to get that easily so you know, if you look on forums on like Board Game Geek, you might be able to find threads and such. But I think that just in terms of you know criticism as an enterprise, the fact that there's so little of it that delves into this is deeply unfortunate. There's there's a lot of missed opportunities there, and I think with video gaming it can be much the same. I feel like there's a number of missed opportunities when we deprioritize reviews that have spoilers in them because the sweep of the story is the thing. Mm. And certainly I would have preferred to know this about Dragon sort of going in. I don't think I was hurt by it. I don't think of these things in, the, in those sorts of terms. And I appreciate the fact that others will have a different experience. I don't view myself as injured or wounded in any sense. By this revelation in Dragon, even if it was ableist. But if I weren't reviewing it myself 
and I were just downloading it to play. It might have been nice to have a review that named that twist for me, and then I might have made a very different decision about buying the game. Like, do I want to do this for two hours? Or maybe I do. Maybe I want to see for myself. Because that's the other thing, is that revealing a twist, for instance, or revealing something that is hidden until later on in the narrative, doesn't necessarily ruin your enjoyment of a story because the story is about how you get there it's about the experience of building up to that and so even if i know two-thirds of the way through the movie this twist happens or this thing gets revealed it's actually so and so who's the bad guy right i want to see how that gets built up and that's kind of impossible to spoil However well I write, I cannot give you the experience of actually playing the game. Mm. So I feel like, you know, spoilers are not as violent and destructive as all that. And to be a bit cheeky about it, if your game hinges solely on the spoiler, it may not actually be that good narratively. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a good place to end. For more from Catherine, you can follow her on Twitter at Q-U-I-N-N-A-E underscore M-O-O-N. Head to the episode description for a link to her article about Draugen and mine about the Magnificent Truffle Pigs. I'm also on Twitter at Jerrica Weber, and the first people to hear my thoughts about Truffle Pigs were those who watched me stream it at twitch.tv slash Jerrica Weber, so do follow me there too. The podcast is on Twitter at TalkingSimPod, and you can even email us at TalkingSimulatorPod at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, the best way to let us know is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And make sure that you're subscribed so you get the next episode in two weeks. It's about a brand new game that I'm very excited to unpack. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at J-A-Z-Z-M-I-C-K-L-E. Talking Simulator is mixed by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at D-A-N-C-P-A-R-K-E-S. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. I'm also recording the Zoom as backup. Yeah, I I heard that. Did the lady tell you when you signed on to the call? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was very polite about it. <laughs>